I went to a meetup last night and heard a really fun discussion about ordinals that made me think ordinals are maybe cooler than I thought, in the sense that because ordinals store arbitrary data in the block witness data, they're putting data in the cheapest part of a Bitcoin block. And that fee that we charge for data in blocks, there's a, a reason behind it. Actually, I'd love to get some boosts in to correct me here, but Bitcoin blocks essentially have a SegWit extension. So before SegWit, you made a transaction and your transaction data and the witness data, the witness data being the signatures, the cryptographic signatures that quote unquote authorize or enable the transaction to be accepted by the network, they all went in the same place. And legacy nodes that never upgraded to SegWit, they just see this small block, which I think has a one megabyte limit full of non-SegWit and non-Taproot transactions. But then with SegWit, there was this new section of the block that was added where you could put signatures. And so SegWit actually made Bitcoin blocks bigger because if you use SegWit to make a transaction, your transaction data was put in this old section of the block and your witness data, the signatures, went into this SegWit extension block witness area that was cheaper. And the reason that this witness data is cheaper it incentivized reducing the UTXO set and reducing the UTXO set is a really good trend for maintaining network decentralization because the UTXO set is kind of like the current chain state. It's the current state of the Bitcoin network. And so Bitcoin nodes sort of need to store that in memory, in RAM. And if that gets too big, that chain state, then suddenly Raspberry Pis can't run Bitcoin nodes anymore. And you end up in an Ethereum situation where you need servers with hundreds of gigabytes of memory to hold chain state. So SegWit incentivized destroying UTXOs and consolidating them. And also the witness data doesn't necessarily need to be validated during the initial block download because witness data needs to be checked when blocks are created initially. But once a chain has been built on top of these blocks, theoretically, you could just throw the witness data away. If there was a bad witness data and then a chain was built on top of it, it would mean that the whole Bitcoin network was colluding to put in invalid transactions for a long period. And that doesn't seem to be a, I don't think we really need to worry about that so much. It's such an adversarial network that we can kind of trust that there wasn't massive collusion in the past, given how the network is working today, if that makes sense, I think. And so the, the bit that I think it sounded like you're warming up to is that the ordinal data is saved in sort of this optional area. Is that what I'm taking from this? Right. Because it's in the witness data, you don't necessarily need to download it when you're doing your initial block download. And there's a link in this week's Bitcoin Optech where I think Peter Willa talks about it. And this is kind of brought to the front of the discussion, the fact that the way that Bitcoin does the initial block download to sync a new node is probably a little inefficient and could be improved. So ordinals have this nice property of interpreting the rules of Bitcoin, pushing them to the limit to do something, and then forcing introspection and improvement of the protocol, specifically around this initial block download process. So I think that's all very positive, very adversarial. And you get goofy pictures of internet wizards on the blockchain to boot. Who doesn't love that, right? And the thing is, then, if you if you want to really, truly own your goofy picture, then you're going to want to run your own node. So this kind of promotes running full nodes for ordinal users, right? And I kind of like that. 100%. This ordinal insider was telling me that there's just been a scramble in the past couple of weeks 
as crypto people are firing up Bitcoin full nodes because there's not a good custody solution to hold your ordinal transcription JPEG right now. The best way to do it is with your own node running this custom ORD tool that Casey wrote. But if you don't want to mess around with any of this, you could just ignore it. You don't even need to upgrade to SegWit if you don't want to. Just download the Bitcoin core release from six, seven years ago. It'll work fine. Bitcoin supports you being as curmudgeonly as you prefer. It's the curmudgeonly is all up to you. It's actually a Luddite technology. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Bitcoin uh, believes in a Luddite scale, and you can choose where you fit on that scale. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, February 24th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here again, always, usually, with... Mm, Oh, hey, it's me. It's It's me. It's a cold Pacific Northwest morning that we're recording, Dad. And cold weather fits the... Are we still in a bear market mood? Is it still chilly out there in terms of sentiment? I don't know. I think so. I think it's I think it's cooling. I think I think people are starting to get a little bit of a uh, second guessing kind of vibe right now. Maybe we weren't in a bear market. <laughs> we shall see. Today we're going to discuss Coinbase's announcement that they're launching their own Ethereum layer 2 chain called Base. The Federal Reserve has confirmed its previous denial of Wyoming Special Purpose Depository Institution Custodia's application for a FedMaster account. It's kind of interesting what's going on there. There's some personalities involved. In economics, we're going to look at an article that explains how changes to the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, for 2022 did not hide inflation, but may have raised it in some cases. So so that's kind of a surprising conclusion uh, from our friend Wolf Richter's analysis. In privacy, Signal, a private messaging app that we kind of unwillingly use ever since they created their own altcoin, is calling out the UK's latest child safety law that seeks to ban and end encryption. Then in Bitcoin education, we read Gandalf's Beginner Focus Guide to Elliptic Curve Cryptography. Kind of a fun read, pretty accessible. And we have Bitcoin Optech 239, which covers a new Bitcoin opcode called OpVault, which could be a competitor to Jeremy Rubin's OpChemp Op check template verify then we will have some feedback and boosts and that's our show it might be a uh, crypto winter and actually winter but uh people be building maybe some people are building things they shouldn't be building but they're still building nonetheless we talked a lot about this coinbase announcement before the show just because it it seemed very weird to you and based on the coinbase press release and i know we shouldn't read press releases let's look at what people build and evaluate it but the truth is we're never going to touch this l2 so let's see what coinbase is trying to do here and essentially this l2 so a layer 2 blockchain it means it's a blockchain built on top of a popular big blockchain and in this case coinbase has chosen ethereum it seems to be running also either on top of or in parallel with a project called optimism and while Coinbase doesn't say that they're issuing a token on it. I think that it's implied that eventually some sort of token will be airdropped or something will happen with the token eventually, because they've talked a lot about eventually decentralizing it to a community. In their press release, the goal seems to be to have a open network that you can do decentralized applications, probably decentralized exchanges, and that this chain will provide 
full Ethereum virtual machine equivalence. Doesn't say compatibility, but equivalence. Why are Bitcoiners interested in what Coinbase is doing on Ethereum? Well, personally, for me, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the federated sidechain concept and that discussion in Bitcoin. Did that occur to you, Chris? I hadn't really thought of it that way, but that's an interesting take. Because this base chain is going to be built out of the Optimism technology stack. And Optimism, it's a, I believe it's a bridge. A bridge is just a, essentially a custodial multisig that uh, has funds on different chains, and you can kind of send money into this multisig. I think they refer to this as a sequencing layer, though, but you're saying it's essentially it's just a bridge. When I look at the OpStack docs, so OpStack is supposed to be the Optimism technical stack, the way that they portray it visually is that Ethereum, and, and they reverse it in some weird way. So they have Ethereum, then they have the Optimism bridge, and then they have this concept of a super chain where they want to have L2 chains running in parallel that are interoperable. Yeah, here's what they say about that. They say, we expect that there will be many roll-ups with significant activity serving as hubs for different ecosystems. They will gradually increase in their interoperability until they form a mesh or super chain that jointly scales Ethereum. I struggle to understand if this makes sense because optimism seems to concede that blockchains don't really scale because of the inherent throughput limitations of this data type. And so their solution is to create multiple blockchains in parallel that can talk to each other. So I don't quite understand how this creates scaling. Maybe the concept is that over time, as a chain gets very large and has a lot of history, you migrate to a fresher chain. And so in a kind of permissioned corporate chain environment, you can coordinate and do sort of like live migrations to a fresher chain with less activity. Uh, I wonder if that's what the indexer layer does in their diagram here. Maybe that's keeping track of which chains are hot. To me, Dad, it looked more like just business opportunities. The reason why you would have multiple chains is because you're going to have lots of little businesses. Like you could have, remember how Cloudflare is getting in on staking, right? You could have everybody from Cloudflare to you know Coinbase to each exchange could have their own little thing going on and it all connects back. That way they can truly claim it's all decentralized. That's That'll be their version of decentralization is all these proprietary little chains. Right. And it seems like there are a lot of hints that this is going to be run in data centers on high performance hardware because they talk about low latency layer two to layer two message passing you know low latency doesn't exist unless you have high speed connections between your nodes and even better like low physical distance the security of bitcoin is actually based on protocols that work with high latency so you know none of the design described in the OpStack docs suggests that they have in any way solved the blockchain trilemma problem. The blockchain trilemma being security, decentralization, and throughput. Choose two. You can't have all three. And I think this reminds me a lot of Web3 and other altcoin projects that attempt to obfuscate the fundamental drawbacks of these decentralized blockchain models with complexity and inventing terminology. So, you know, when we zoom out, like what's actually going on here? What I think probably is happening is that Coinbase needs to do something to make themselves an attractive company to support their stock price, which has been suffering over the past year. And they blew a billion dollars on building an NFT platform that nobody wanted, and they got to market too late. NFTs were already crashing. 
And so they wasted a lot of investor money on a bad bet. And maybe at the same time, they were thinking, well, you know, there's a lot of activity on decentralized exchanges. We didn't get to capture that. They were able to deploy really garbage speculative tokens that even we couldn't get onto our platform fast enough with even our token nod to regulatory compliance and, you know, doing due diligence on these projects. So maybe what we can do, also because we see that there's regulation coming down the pipeline towards US regulated entities that might limit their ability to play with really garbage altcoins in the next bull run, is if they build a Ethereum layer, because Ethereum is the the mother of all decentralized exchange contracts that allow any speculative token to be traded immediately, if they can kind of get in on that game, then maybe they can still participate in the speculative altcoin casino games that made Coinbase all of its money, even if they get regulated in the US because they'll say, hey, it's DeFi, you know, it's permissionless. We can't control it, even though maybe we do fundamentally because it's a chain we build on a semi-permission protocol like Opstack. I think that's a huge part of it. It's got to be they see the landscape. They're really talking a lot about decentralization in all of the documentation, in all of the posts. I'm on their site right now, and they have a post here that says decentralizing base with the OP stack and optimism. And at the top, they they say the TLDR is, we believe that decentralization is critical to an open crypto economy. That's why we'll be deploying base as the second L2 on the open source OP stack following the optimism mainnet. But when you look at the design of this, multiple aspects of this are inherently centralizing, including aspects of it where there's just going to be straight up probably companies running custodian services in the middle of this thing. And then it all rides on top of Ethereum, which has, number one, an extreme centralization problem pretending to be a decentralization problem. And number two is essentially an OFAC compliant chain now. And I laugh at the idea that this is considered decentralization and you can tell they're really pushing it. It would be interesting to throw uh, all of these all these pages through a word counter and see just how many times they mention it. But then when you go over and look at the design, it's not decentralized. I spent the morning on the Optimism GitHub page. You know, there's about 125 contributors that are working pretty consistently, and some of them are from Coinbase, and they've been working at it pretty good for about a year, but it's still very nascent. This is very early days still. And that's something we don't talk about here, but all of this technology is unproven. First of all, there is no large successful L2 on Ethereum. There really is no use case for any of this right now because the NFT market's completely dead. So I'm not even sure what the use case of these L2s even is because it's pretty cheap just to use Ethereum right now. And then the other thing that strikes me about this, and I think when you go through and you look at the Optimism project, is this has never really been tested at scale. There's like no users. Like, it's all kind of conceptual. I have to imagine that it's a lot of hot air right now. And Coinbase has got to be playing some kind of long game where the U.S. regulators tighten up on them and they don't get to play around in the casino. So they create this platform and then they basically run the house because it's their platform. It's their chain. They basically are the house while also getting to say, well, we didn't create that dApp. We didn't create that trade. It's just an open source project. You know, I mean, do you you hold Linus Torvalds responsible for the fact that Putin is deploying Linux in his military? No, it's just open source. There's nothing we can do about it. Right. I think that this might be some sort of plan B if Coinbase loses control of the, not control, but if they sense that regulation is running away from them in the U.S. and that 
either is going to destroy or severely constrict their regulated crypto business here? And not just the U.S., right? In fact, it's probably almost a guarantee that in some Western nation, they're going to get screwed. And so this is a hedge everywhere. It's not just the U.S. So I guess the question is, why are they going to build their own L2 as opposed to just deploying a smart contract on Ethereum? And I think the answer is that smart contracts on Ethereum are a pretty competitive marketplace, and they're also pretty expensive to run. So they may see that development on Ethereum layer one might be slowing due to the scalability issues on that platform that result in high fees and other bad user experience type uh, situations. And so if you build an L2 where you can kind of create, you know, the illusion at least of low cost, mainly because you're essentially removing security and therefore able to provide greater throughput by centralizing it, by controlling it as Coinbase or, you know, sort of a sham community around it, then you can directly integrate certain Coinbase systems and really learn the ecosystem, learn the stack. So you have kind of an advantage to build there. So this might mean that they have a place to deploy smart contracts that perhaps give Coinbase some revenue, but also maybe they somehow integrate with things that Coinbase is doing on the more custodial side, certain tokens they want to pump or something like that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, they can they can help feature those. But also, I think, you know, when you look at the design of this, both when you read what Coinbase has and you go through all the optimism stuff, what I see is a lot of business opportunity, a lot of places for middlemen to get a cut. It's kind of like celebrating the best of the fiat banking system, but creating new technical roles for all of these and just inserting middlemen at every little place. And if you are the company that's built the platform, you're like the Microsoft for this ecosystem. You will not only have opportunities to make money, but there'll be projects that you can incorporate quickly, but you're going to become an important player in this ecosystem if this were to play out in the way they think it's going to. Of course, I struggle to think of a single use case beyond NFTs for any of this. If somebody could boost in with some other use case for something like this, I'd love to know. I just don't see it. But it's, um, it's funny that... Coinbase has become such an Ethereum company because the other thing I, this, this whole announcement and digging into optimism and digging into the Ethereum improvement proposals that have been submitted to make all of this work, which aren't even necessarily accepted yet. Coinbase has a hand in all of it. Coinbase has full-time staff that are writing code and improvement changes for Ethereum, for optimism, for now the space. They are an Ethereum company. Coinbase is an Ethereum company with development time and resources. Like if you think about it from a staffing and resourcing standpoint, they're making proposals to change fundamental aspects of Ethereum to build some of this stuff. They're they're an Ethereum company. And I think it's just so ridiculous that they did all of this before they got around to implementing Lightning, which is so, so disappointing in, in Coinbase, which started with potential. You know, I thought it would be the it is a survivor. I thought because, you know, it seemed like it knew when to play ball. You know, I thought, you know, they were really focused for a few years there. And then to see this now, it's just they want to basically create a decentralized casino that's decentralized in name only. Um, it's uh, so exciting. And to see the Ethereum people, you know, oh, this, this validates Ethereum. Like, give me a break. <laughs> it's just it's created. It's a whole scam layer. It's a grift layer is what it is. It's a grift. It's a grift. It's a grift chain. It's grift base. You know, I mean, it's just and, and to see all the excitement is uh, it's hilarious. Is this our title like L2 Griftonomics or something? 
what I just want to say is, I don't think we are just salty Bitcoiners who are you know, jealous of all the love Ethereum gets and look at all these people building on it. Why aren't they building on Bitcoin? You know, maybe Bitcoin's <laughs> what? B- boomer tech what? or something. What love? What's being built? Dapps? Oh. Okay, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> okay. All right. It's, it's so just, if you think about what people are actually using this stuff for, it's just nonsensical. Right. But here's the kicker. The kicker is Bitcoin is still the market leader in if you even if you think crypto is real and there are things with value other than Bitcoin, you have to acknowledge that Bitcoin is the market leader and Ethereum is a far second in terms of sort of value transacted and whatnot. Like it's clear that Ethereum is not the market leader. So it's weird that Coinbase puts so much investment in the thing that is not the market leader. Like it would be rational to at least do something with the market leader, but they don't do anything with it. They've never done any investment in Bitcoin development or in sort of, you know, even integrating Lightning. You know, Lightning makes Bitcoin a much better payment transaction layer. And there are other exchanges doing it. In fact, there are some exchanges that are pure Lightning now. So why do they not do this thing with Bitcoin that is relatively easy to do, doesn't require too much investment, and they're building their own Ethereum L2? And I think the answer is that Ethereum is an ecosystem where you can really get insider benefits. You can really steer development. It's a much uh, less liquid marketplace. And so there's the ability to play games if you run an order book to pump and dump to, you know, sort of like do stuff like that. The fact that Ethereum has a standard for creating altcoins on top of it means that you can add all of the altcoins to your exchange, but you don't have to add new nodes. You know, they, it just comes with your Ethereum node infrastructure. I think that's probably very attractive, things like that. So I just think there are a lot of really bad incentives in Ethereum that are not good for Ethereum users and not good for the Ethereum quote unquote project long term that insiders like Coinbase can exploit to make short term profits. And that's the theme here. Yeah. And I just don't think there is that range of opportunity in Bitcoin, right? You'd have to be a smaller, leaner business that's more focused. Um, I mean, I think there is a lot of opportunity, but I think Coinbase wants to be something else. They want to be a big player in a large ecosystem. Like a tech company, like a Google or Apple or something. Yeah. And uh, you know what? That makes sense when you think about kind of the era that Coinbase was created in and the mentality of the market at the time that Coinbase became a thing and when they would be creating their goals. Um, That's what they would have aimed for. So I guess that makes sense. But what does strike me about this is none of the incentives seem to be there for the users, right? Like I'm I'm looking at this whole design. I'm thinking, boy, there's a lot of positions in here where people are going to have to hand their keys over. There's a lot of times where there's an opportunity for fees and prices to be increased or data to be lost or some part to be compromised because it's even when you go by what they consider their simple stack, they, they mentioned that they think the optimism stack is simple. Well, their simple stack has one, two, three, four, five, six different layers. And, and interestingly, the governance layer is like applied on top somehow. It's not simple. It's going to be expensive. And it's, I see the incentives for Coinbase. I do not see the incentives for the users or for the customers. We'll see. I think the fundamental incentive to be into Ethereum and things like that is a sense that you're too late to Bitcoin and that Bitcoin is already too valuable. It's not going to get more valuable. And you want to get into the project that's going to flip in Bitcoin, that's going to 
have that run up to network scale adoption that Bitcoin had and went from, you know, pennies to dollars to hundreds to thousands of dollars. And then you're, you know, incredibly wealthy. And the simple truth is that's not going to happen again. You see VC backed projects that use marketing and, uh, you know, usually a lot of market manipulation to create these massive pumps that then inevitably dump down. And the simple fact is that there are network effects, both due to the technology of digital communication networks, but also the monetary aspects of these networks that mean once you create the biggest network, it just self-propagates. And as long as it doesn't have some sort of lethal flaw that causes it to centralize and collapse or breaks the functionality of it in some critical way that causes everyone to migrate to a new network, that network is just going to be the number one and stay there. And that's Bitcoin. And the reason that Bitcoin had an opportunity to grow is because the euro dollar system, the dollar traditional financial system is breaking. It is losing functionality. It's not working for large numbers of people. And while the majority of activity on these crypto platforms, including Bitcoin, is quite speculative. We see on Bitcoin real monetary uses, also a savings technology use that I don't think you can justify on Ethereum and these smaller, more speculative chains. I don't think that people who save in Ethereum or in optimism tokens or whatever are going to have great long-term outcomes. Because if you look at these price charts when priced in Bitcoin, they're all plummeting down to zero, including Ethereum. You know, There's so many angles you could talk about this, right? Because you could talk about it from a governance standpoint. You could talk about it from a network design standpoint. You could talk about it from a code design standpoint. But I like thinking about it from a savings standpoint today. And Bitcoin, not only does it incentivize self-custody, which Ethereum does not because of staking, but Bitcoin is also, it's a savings technology that is both a hedge against the existing banking system failing and also is a terrific performing asset if the existing banking system sorts itself out. Um, Ethereum doesn't feel like that to me. Ethereum feels like, well, number one, like I said, staking incentivizes that somebody else has your keys, which there, right there makes it a weaker savings technology. And number two, Ethereum is much more connected to the banking industry. It, it seems to be something that, you know, the Wall Street gamers that like to, to play all these little games seem to be drawn to these dApps and all, all of these DeFi schemes. It seems much more of like a recreation of the existing banking system and much more tied closely to it. And then you, you add in factors like that there's a couple of single individuals. Um, like if any, if anybody that runs consensus were to die, Ethereum's price would dip. If Vitalik were to die or disappear, Ethereum's price would dip. Like that doesn't feel like a safe savings technology either. And then like you always like to point out too, dad, there's a pre-mine and that doesn't feel particularly great in terms of actually being able to trust this asset and really trust with it. We know where all the coins are at and we're not going to get surprised. Like in Bitcoin, we worry about things like Mt. Gox like dumping a bunch of coins eventually on the market, right? But any one of these ETH whales at any point could unload, they could, anything could happen. And I just, I find that to also be problematic from a saving standpoint. Maybe not from like smart contracts and, you know, running dApps. Maybe it's fine. Maybe those risks are fine for that. But from a, but when you look at it from a saving standpoint, those risks just to me are big differentiators between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Well, and also there's no scarcity in Ethereum. Ethereum has no hard yeah, limit. Huge. It has, in, huge. It, it has infinite inflation. And just to harp on the pre-mine, I honestly, I cannot believe we've talked for half an hour on the subject, but <laughs> there yeah. you go. It's a big story this week, bases, launches. But the thing is, 
the pre-mine means that proof of stake never made sense. Because if you don't have a fair launch, and you know, I think the Ethereum pre-mine, to give them some credit, was fairer than future pre-mines that were entirely VC-dominated, where venture capitalists got to purchase a billion dollars of Solana, but not pay a billion dollars for it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mm-hmm. But with a big pre-mine where there are insiders who have the majority of the coins, and still the pre-mine is the majority of Ethereum, proof of stake means that they will never be diluted. So you don't have decentralization in a system where the network validators are the original inside team who got the pre-mine. That's what proof of stake enables because they can take their pre-mine coins, which by the way, they can't really sell because they own too much of the market to sell. They, they would crash the price. And you know all of these systems are very vulnerable to price falls. People really lose interest in, and faith because they're just in it for the price gains, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, look at the podcasts in that space. They're all about how do we pump this price and create new tokens to sell. They're not about how do we solve fundamental issues with human coordination and, you know, our monetary system. I mean, the reality is the entire project is oriented that way. And and how do I justify saying that? The fact that you can't even unstake your coins right now and the people were okay with that, that was a pure play to keep the price up, right? I mean, could you imagine if, if everybody could be selling their ETH right now, the price would be much lower. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's another factor here we should consider, and that is, of course, Coinbase owns about 15% of the staking market in Ethereum as well. You know, they're just number two to Lido, which has 30%, and then Kraken at, at 8%. So you have the top three companies, Lido, Coinbase, and Kraken. Of course, Coinbase is an Ethereum company. You know, this is, this is just money printing for them because they're taking a percentage of all of that staking. And they're staking 15%. They run 63 validators. There's over probably 2 million plus ETH deposited in their staking pool. Gosh, I hope they don't get regulated. That would be terrible. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, uh, optimism and, and base, it's going to be really exciting. All these terms. I If anybody wants a nice noodle baker, go read the uh, optimism docs and go read the optimism GitHub and just parse that language for a little bit. It will bake your noodle. And then check out the Bitcoin core repository and read some of those docs. And you'll actually finally agree with us when we say Bitcoin is simple (laughs) by comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Or just go read the white paper, right? Go read the first eight pages of the white paper and then go read some of this stuff. It's it's remarkable. It's (laughs) just like so thick with jargon. Read it with your mother. She'll understand. She'll get it. I don't know why I said that. Here you with family. Yeah. Yeah. Family. Yeah. <laughs> Our second story is about Custodia. Custodia is a Wyoming special purpose depository institution. It was founded by Caitlin Long. I think Caitlin is a former JP Morgan, I want to say, person. So she's an investment banker type. She comes out of traditional finance. She's very thoughtful. Caitlin also did some original research about the use of U.S. Treasury securities as money in the international financial system. So I think she's very thoughtful. And her purpose with Custodia, which I think was originally called Avanti, was to create a bank that was a full reserve bank that could custody crypto assets, I think mainly Bitcoin, without any rehypothecation. 
And from a sort of uh, designing a new financial system and integrating it with the existing financial system standpoint, this is a really good thing to do. This is a very important project to find a way to create a banking model that doesn't blow up with the implications of Bitcoin, of an asset that does do final settlement and does it very quickly. And Caitlin has long been very concerned about the integration of altcoins and traditional finance because her, I think, very reasonable point is, okay, you're taking a super volatile asset and you're going to plug that into a fragile financial system with huge amounts of inbuilt leverage. You're going to get a blow up. It's going to blow up. And I think she was she was right. And actually, Caitlin has been tweeting this week about how she and Custodia have actually tried to work with financial regulators because she identified signs of fraud in various uh, sort of, um, I I don't know if it was specifically FTX or something relating to Silvergate. It's pretty easy to argue that Caitlin is a good actor from a financial regulatory standpoint because she seems to be proactive in approaching regulators when she believes there's financial fraud with other crypto participants. And her bank, Custodia, is not FDIC insured. But because they are a recognized Wyoming bank, they applied for a Federal Reserve master account. And that essentially gives them very low level good access to the US dollar banking system at a very kind of base level. And they were denied. And the denial is frankly incoherent. The reason given is that their business model is novel, it's new, and that because they're doing something with crypto assets, there is significant safety and soundness risks. And so they're, they're too risky to allow access to Federal Reserve dollar systems. And this is frankly not true because the special purpose depository institution model is full reserve. They don't rehypothecate assets. There's literally no way for them to have an asset liability mismatch. And for context, under current Federal Reserve banking laws, large banks like JP Morgan Chase or Wells Fargo can hold 0% reserves for their deposit liability. They can literally have no reserves for their deposits. And that's legal. And that's accepted that the Federal Reserve doesn't have a problem with that. But a bank that has full reserve that is completely backed, but might have crypto assets as well in there, that is just too risky. And so it's a completely incoherent critique of Custodia's business model. It shows you where things are at right now. And they're going like into court over this, right? The, and the Fed tried to get it dismissed because, well, we we deemed the count was you know, not valid anyway. So it's, this lawsuit's nonsensical. And I guess they have like a counter argument does for that. Custodia does. So it sounds like this is probably going to get at least into a legal battle where essentially the, it sounds like the fundamental question of if the Fed even has the discretion to decide this at all will come up because it sounds like a custodia spokesperson said that they don't think that the Fed actually even has the authority to make that call. <laughs> so that'd be interesting. <laughs> They're actually alleging that the Federal Reserve is unofficially cooperating with the Biden administration to block Custodia's activities. Ooh, that's some interesting. Okay. They'd have to how do you even prove that? Well, I, I don't know. I, it sounds very inflammatory, but one thing I really think is interesting about this setup is that this is very reminiscent, in my view, 
of 19th century American banking history, because the United States has always had a financial system dominated by New York banks. New York banks really, uh, I think especially under the um, Jackson administration, they've always had this kind of insider's club death grip on American finance that has disadvantaged the development of financial services in other states. And you can see that in that while there are 12 or 13 U.S. Federal Reserve banks throughout the country, the power is at the New York Federal Reserve. And so one way to view this is this is legacy finance trying to kill innovations in terms of Bitcoin and new financial technologies. Another way to view it is this is a conflict between New York, which has completely won control of legacy finance in the U.S. and discouraged challengers using rules like the New York bit license that make it prohibitive for a new entrance to become compliant to do digital asset stuff. You kind of have to be legacy to comply with these very strict rules. They are, you know, perhaps stifling other geographies in the States that are attempting to kind of um, end run them with a new technology, with a new business model. But you can see that the Wyoming district courts are happy to let this go to trial. So there's an interesting political balancing act. This is kind of an opportunity for the U.S.'s anarchic, decentralized political model to do a little work for Bitcoin, potentially. Well, all right. That's a pretty nice silver lining you managed to find there. I'm impressed. That was, that's good. That's good. I hope you're right, of course. Put your cards on the table. Let's let's see, because we do need to solve this problem. And Wyoming is really becoming one of the most pro cryptocurrency states out there. That's so, you know, they got their I think they're trying to attract industry. And so if they could have a bank like this, and when you go to their website, you know, they're clearly trying to make services available for businesses too. So I think this is part of that. You want Wyoming to be appealing to crypto companies, I think particularly mining and whatnot. You gotta have good financial services available. And as somebody who has spent time in Wyoming multiple times, I can tell you the state needs this badly. <laughs> There's not a lot going on. I visited and uh I don't mean to you, I'm not teasing, but one of the towns I visited, which was the second largest city in Wyoming, the JC Penny was the highlight of the town. That's that was the thing to do. And there was a diner. <laughs> um they, they don't have a lot going on. They they're kind of a pass through. They're they're definitely hubs for shipping. There's a lot of industry that supports that, but there's not a lot of businesses that are just there making a lot of money, bringing money and employment to the local economies. It seems like there's a real opportunity here if there's financial services to support those businesses, to support those employees, to support that economy. Now, Chris, do you remember when we were talking about the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics updating their CPI basket? Yeah. Earlier this year? I recall that the conversation seemed like we expected things to basically become more rosy in the results because why else would you adjust how you measure something in the middle of measuring something unless you wanted the results to look better? (laughs) Right. I think that I agreed with you at that moment. At the same time, I've also expressed the view that I think that Bitcoiners can be paranoid about institutions like the Bureau of Labor Statistics or even institutions like the Fed and think that there's kind of a grand conspiracy to keep everyone in the dark about inflation, about how the monetary system works, and it's all lies. I would look at it differently. I think you're being a little harsh to Bitcoiners. I think it's reasonable doubt based on how we've seen the way that they adjust the employment numbers or the CPI over time. Like We've seen them just make adjustments that have been more favorable to them 
And so people just come to expect it, I think. Maybe perhaps cynically so. I think that's a good point. Maybe I was overstating it to, to make the contrary point. But what I think you can see with the CPI and these BLS adjustments is that it's pretty hard to make a CPI. It's pretty hard to keep it updated as consumer preferences shift and change. And so what the BLS has done is they previously reweighted the CPI every two years, but now they're going to do it every one year because the dislocations during the pandemic were so huge that they didn't think that their old weightings would capture it well enough. And our friend of the show, not a friend of Bitcoin, Wolf Richter, has done some analysis and he points out that they've seriously increased the CPI weight of rent and food at home and new vehicles such that the CPI is actually shooting higher as a result of these changes. And even as they uh, have reduced the weight of used vehicles, the price of used vehicles has fallen even harder. So they didn't really help their CPI numbers necessarily by making those changes. I think it's an interesting read at what's actually happening inside the index. And I read this as, you know, generally speaking, the BLS has not gotten the memo that there is a conspiracy to suppress inflation. This looks like a bunch of government economists trying to do something that logically makes sense to them and mostly succeeding. But in the process, CPI has gone up. So this, I think, is very positive in terms of there being institutions that are attempting to do right by whatever they consider that to be, and that it's not just a political game. Yeah, it seems like they're weighing things that should have probably been weighed higher before, like rent and food. But I saw some analysis point out, and I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, that this is still basically entirely influenced by goods and doesn't represent the increase in cost of services, which have all gone up from every kind of service has gone up in cost. Isn't that interesting? And what are your thoughts on that? Why is this really not measuring services? That's a really good question. And I don't have a good answer. I could only speculate that there may be difficulty when you try to untangle the cost of services from wage data. So you could get a weird situation where if wages are influenced by CPI because of cost of living adjustments and service, like the service weighting and the service inflation is influenced by wages, you could get this weird circularity where the CPI could drive up service inflation just because of the way that they count it, potentially. The reason I think of that is because the way that the CPI accounts for housing costs is very odd. They have this concept called owner's equivalent rent. And it's this idea that you're capturing the price of a new house by imagining what it would cost to rent it. And that's kind of indirect. Why wouldn't you just capture the cost of purchasing new houses? Well, the problem is that when you do that, you end up capturing interest rate changes on mortgage payments. And that ends up basically dominating the CPI. And that was a problem, or that was perceived to be a problem in the 1970s with the 1970s inflation. So a lot of these odd ways of counting price increases, it's not necessarily that they're just trying to suppress the counting of inflation to keep government benefit payments lower 
and to reduce concerns about inflation in the populace. I think that it actually is a very difficult thing to measure because we've talked about inflation is very personal and they're trying to measure inflation for 350 million odd Americans. So it's going to be inaccurate. It's going to be messy and they're going to fudge the numbers a lot to get something that's sort of representative in my view. Yeah. Well, I tell you, food definitely feels like it's more expensive for me. It weighs heavily in my personal inflation index. (laughs) What do you think about Signal announcing that they would pull out of the UK if the United Kingdom government asked them to weaken their end-to-end encryption model? Do we forgive them for creating their own cryptocurrency? (laughs) Does Does it make up for that? No. (laughs) No, uh, it does not. But I'll tell you this. I I don't know if I believe them, but I do appreciate them making this stance. This story reminds me of the old saying, like, privacy is doesn't really matter to you until it does. I've thought for a long time that we're going to see a real battle of governments that want access to all kinds of communication encryption. And I've worried for a long time that I'm going to be on the other side of that argument. And I've, w- I've wondered what that will mean for me personally. So I appreciate Signal's taking a strong stance. I doubt they would actually follow through with it. it. seems like the market's too large for me. The government says its proposal doesn't ban end-to-end decryption. Well, I guess that's technically true, as long as you consider them part of that end-to-end setup. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that I think WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, has also kind of gotten some media coverage by saying they're going to refuse to lower security requirements for any government. But WhatsApp, you know, already has all user message data. So they don't have to lower security standards. They just have to create a backend where law enforcement can request user data. It's interesting that even companies like Facebook that are effectively anti-privacy due to their business model recognize that this is becoming the sort of topic where you kind of need to say the right things in public, uh, maybe because there's growing public awareness of the problems of unrestricted data collection. Yeah. I I mean, I think when it comes to people's private chat messages and their photos, they care a lot. When it's their emails, I don't know. I I can't really understand it. It's like there's some stuff that seems like the public really gets worked up about. And then there's other types of things, other types of metadata information that get collected, you know, location history, stuff like that, that they just don't seem to care about. And it just doesn't register any kind of reaction. But photos and messages, definitely one that always seems to get people worked up. We are seeing sort of the last moment that these governments have to get a backdoor into these products before they just become norm and widespread and they don't have access. And, you know, to just to play devil's advocate for a moment, because I don't actually personally believe in this position, but I can steel man it. Traditional platforms for communication, the telco companies, the postal services, they've been partners with enforcement agencies that need to stop actual crime. And they can just get access to your account history, location information, communications records, who you've called, if it's a text message, the actual text message. And they can do that through standardized processes that supposedly allow them to do the investigations within time to help people. And now here come along these new Silicon Valley based or other, you know, technology nerd, nerd groups. You know, you think about how these guys look at it. You know, these geeks, they create these communications platforms that use encryption and they don't even think about the ramifications of it. Right. That's that's their perspective. Hackers in. Right hoodies. And these are the two perspectives that are playing out right now. And this is sort of the last chance for the institution to get its what it considers its, you know, standard access that they should have. And I think the people don't trust those institutions enough anymore to want to give it to them. And these companies know it and they know that the market dynamics have changed. And it's weird that people 
feel safer with their private, potentially risque communications with private companies than they do in the hands of their elected officials and governments. But that is the world we live in. Right. I mean, this story actually also has a quote from Matthew Hodgkinson of the Element Project. And Element is the matrix client we use in our matrix room. And he's basically saying that, yeah, if this bill passes, Element is going to have to build in back doors. And if it passes, you'll have to assume that you can't trust the end-to-end encryption options in his product. So I I think you're right that from an institutional perspective, this is just basic access. You know, law enforcement needs access to these things. Also, from an institutional perspective, the moment you use a third-party service, including a bank, you have no right to any kind of privacy. And I think that if most citizens internalized what this means, they might be very disturbed. So I think it's great that we're having this fight out in the open, and I hope that more people get interested in privacy and maybe begin to care a little bit more. Agreed. One of the things that people need to wrap their head around is data collection that happens today can be processed for eternity. And there will always be new systems, new models, new AI models that can go through that information and pull out new insights from it for years, forever. Right. And we don't know who's in charge when that happens. Like maybe you've got a very nice representative government today and, you know, you understand that there's no way to to look at the bad guy's private messages without looking at your private messages too. That's Mm -hmm. why the back door Mm -hmm. is so insidious because the UK government is saying, listen, we just want to protect children. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. Very bad things happening. We need to protect children. We both have kids. We we want to protect our children too. The problem with that argument is if you need to break encryption to protect children, well, now everyone is naked in front of the government. And in 10 years, you know, who knows what that government's going to be? For those on the right, it might be the communist, socialist, blue-haired feminist government. And now, you know, sharing pictures of, you know, cuts of bacon is illegal and they're going to come and get you and make you eat soy food. Or for those on the left, you know, in 10 years, who knows? Maybe it's the new, you know, ethnic nationalist party and you're using people's preferred gender pronouns is illegal and they're going to come and get you because you did that. You know, so if you don't have privacy in your communications, you don't know who's going to be in charge later and who's going to persecute you based on behaviors that were totally fine or maybe even a little controversial today, but in the future are unacceptable. And things change, right? Like this is the point I was trying to make earlier is I'm not doing anything today that is illegal, but if a law were to pass that outlawed the use of encryption that doesn't have government backdoors or that outlawed the use of Bitcoin, well, then on that day, I'd be breaking the law. And now all of a sudden, I have a lot more to protect. And now all of a sudden, I'm a lot more interested in what applications are compromised by my government and which ones aren't because something changed and now I'm on the other side of the law on something. And if you live long enough, if you're fortunate enough to survive, that inevitably will happen. So it's just... I, I don't it's like it's it's sort of it's sort of an investment in the future, I suppose, in taking care of that business now. And uh, I, I really I really hate to see it go this way. I agree. You got to protect children at the same time. It always seems like they're just using that as cover to ex- extend their reach. And, uh, you know, then they can do it under the guise of protecting the children. And then if you challenge it, you're you know, you don't want to protect children and right. you look like a monster. What you're a monster. What do you have to hide? Exactly. 
This year episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by Linux Unplugged, which is just about to hit episode 500. So I wanted to give a little mention. We're doing 499 this weekend, and then it's the big 500. We have some stuff in the works. So check out linuxunplugged.com. It is the world's largest Linux podcast. 500 episodes. Goodness, Chris. Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) It's really ridiculous, isn't it? What am I doing? And we are coming up to a big episode anniversary. This is episode 65. Mm Mm-hmm. I believe we announced, somewhat joking, that in episode 69, we would increase the boost limit to 2,000 sats to read on the show. Oh, look at you remembering. I know, I'm very mercenary. I just want all those sats. And that's actually was you know in the back of my head when we were talking about Custodia. I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be great to sell out to the Bitcoin bank company? You know, we could get that, that sweet finance money. But now that they don't have a Fed master account, who knows? Maybe they don't have dollars to buy sats with or something. Dad's got a stack. You've been telling me that you wanted to brush up on your elliptic curve cryptography for quite some time. So I found this primer for you specifically. I hope you had time right. to review it. You know what I'm always saying is I, I, I want to make sure we put the crypto back into crypto. I don't know. Into cryptography. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Uh, Okay, so this is like a beginner article for elliptic curve cryptography, which uh, this is an awesome read. It's got diagrams. It looks like it's well-structured, too. I love these beginner articles because they kind of demystify some of the the math magic in the middle of things like Bitcoin. And there are a couple of great concepts here that I think are good to just be aware of. And, you know, one concept is just the idea of security, how many bits of security you have in a cryptographic system. And Bitcoin private keys, you might notice that your seed phrase has two options. There's a 12-word seed and a 24-word seed. Oh, yeah. I think that traditionally that 12-word seed has 128 bits of encryption implied by those 12 words. And so the the 24-word is 256 bits. And what you can see is that this article talks about how the elliptic curve cryptography scheme provides bits of encryption, but with a shorter key length than the DCA and RSA standards. And so the TLDR is that elliptic curve cryptography is pretty good and pretty efficient at providing um, sort of protection, cryptographic protection. And then the article gets into how it works. And it's kind of funny to look at because when they say elliptic curve cryptography, they literally mean a curve on a two-dimensional graph. And this elliptic curve that is protecting all of this value on Bitcoin and in other systems, honestly, it looks like a nipple. It's like a graph of a nipple, (laughs) (laughs) right? All right. Now, yeah, okay. All right. I see it. Or a zit. (laughs) Or a zit, right? And so I believe that there actually is at least one cryptographer listening to this, and I'm sure that he is wincing right now. But what's kind of funny about the elliptic curve is that because of the, the specific shape of this nipple curve, you can do this kind of interesting arithmetic where you choose points on the curve and you add them together. And this point you get via elliptic curve addition It's very hard to guess which points were added together to create this second point. 
And if that sounds like a one-way function to you, then you would be correct. That is a one-way function. And so the basis of a lot of these cryptographic systems are these one-way functions where you can present a number. This is like the public key. And it's practically impossible to derive the secret that is behind this public number. Obviously, very high level, probably mostly incorrect as a description of the article, but we suggest you give it a read because uh, this is the basis of a lot of the cryptography that we're building these tools on top of. Take a moment to put the crypto back into your crypto. That's what you meant to say before. Mm-hmm. That's your crypto it has crypto in it. Because this is actually <laughs> a big complaint, I think, among some Linuxers that crypto should mean cryptography, not cryptocurrency. Well, I kind of agree with that, but it is what it is. People use words how they use them, and you can choose to get all worked up about it or you can just go with it. But yeah, there, you know, there is some base to the use of the word. I don't know if we should keep that. Maybe it's boring to describe yeah. a nipple curve. <laughs> well, I guess you can, future you can determine that. Right. This week's Bitcoin Optech number 239 was a big boy of a newsletter. And uh, we mentioned in the pre-show discussion this uh, uh, initial block download uh, question that ordinals and inscriptions has raised. But in the main news, there is a, a blurb about a draft BIP for OpVault, which would be a new Bitcoin opcode. And OpVault essentially does a lot of the things that previous projects or previous proposals like OpCTV uh, can do. And a vault is this idea of a special address that is harder to withdraw funds from than a regular address. Uh, essentially, it has kind of a, a timeout period on transactions. And, and so what the, I think the most common example is your cold storage Bitcoin, your, your stack is not just in a multi-sig, but it's in an op vault. And so when you spend from this op vault, there's a cooling off period where perhaps for two or three days, the transaction can actually be rescinded and moved to a predetermined sort of backup wallet. And this means that you could essentially have additional security because in addition to your multi-sig, your cold storage, if somehow that wallet gets compromised and attackers try to drain it, you have a window to intercept the transaction and send it to a backup wallet that you've prepared beforehand. Yeah, because they're trying to solve the $5 wrench attack too, right? That's one of the things this would this would solve is you could say set a week delay and um, you could you could perhaps recover your funds. It's interesting though to me just because I remember one of the really standout things about Bitcoin when I first discovered it was the finality of the transactions and how it would just that was so different than the traditional banking system. But <laughs> this is a little bit of a change to that in a sense, but I, it makes it does make sense. It, it seems like it could be really kind of a useful thing. And I think it kind of gets into a debate about should we make a change to Bitcoin, a soft fork that enables one specific thing, or should we try to make changes that are more general and enable you to do something like this, but that can also be generalized to other use cases? I think with op check template verify, that was a more generalizable change to Bitcoin because it created the ability to do something like a vault. But what it really was doing was creating this covenant methodology 
to encumber Bitcoins in different ways. And while that sounds a bit scary, encumbering Bitcoin, that could be bad. That could be, you could, you know, sort of break Bitcoin fungibility even more. I think the debate revealed that there are a lot of interesting use cases for something like that that could eventually work their way into smart contracts or multi party ownership of UTXOs, things that essentially scale Bitcoin ownership in interesting ways that are hard to imagine right now with the existing opcodes and tools. Yeah, but ones that you could see being useful as it scales. Uh, you know, there's a couple other things in the uh, in the Optech report just that I always like to follow. And that's anytime there's lightning updates. And the two that I thought were just maybe really quickly worth mentioning is there is some request for feedback around this lightning quality of service flag that they're proposing that allows a node to signal that a channel might be highly available on lightning, indicating that the operator believes it's able to forward payments without failure. But if it does fail to forward the payment, then the spender could choose to not use that node for like a really long time, longer than a default duration. So there's sort of be like a penalty for advertising highly available if you weren't, but they're looking for feedback on that. They're also looking for feedback on the good neighbor scoring system that I didn't even realize was under development. But again, another area where they're looking for how to sort of decide ways for a node to judge whether a channel counterparties are good, like if they've been a good neighbor and they have several criteria they're looking at that maybe they could judge a node by. But again, they're looking for feedback on those criteria as well. Interesting ideas, though, to kind of make the Lightning Network, I guess, more intelligent about channels and reliable nodes. And I know that already plays a factor, but I guess they're refining it a bit more with some of this. This reminds me of a presentation that Waxwing gave at Adopting Bitcoin, and it was essentially about issues around reputation systems to deal with denial of service attacks on Lightning. Oh. And it gets really complicated really fast. So I wonder if it's possible to deal with these denial of service problems with ad hoc solutions like quality of service or neighbor scoring and then gluing them together, or if you kind of need a more fundamental option. Just as a tangent, I think one thing we can see on Twitter today is that when Elon fired the spam prevention unit, we discovered that a lot of the spam prevention on Twitter, at least, is very manual and needs to be guided by a team of developers and analysts, just because the the spam problem seems to have, by all accounts, gotten much, much worse since uh, his purchase of Twitter. That's a very similar problem space to channel jamming, in my opinion. It's interesting to see so far, Notester seems to be solving this with relay fees. Um, and if you got to if you got to pay a few sats to use a relay, <laughs> then it turns out people don't use it to spam, and you you have a lot cleaner signal. And I I don't know what the real solution is, but I that is something that's I think getting hashed out right now. I love the Lightning Network. I think the fact that it makes it so simple and easy to just pair it with something like Notester or Stacker News is another example where instead of just a Reddit upvote on Stacker News, it's a sat. And you, you know, you give one sat as one upvote. And I think you all, and it also is same for the comments, for the links and the comments. And I think you do see higher signal stuff get surfaced. And I think it incentivizes people on Stacker News to create higher quality, higher signal comments because they want to get the upvotes. And then you start seeing people talk about how they've, they're, you know, they stacked 10,000 sats this, this week on Stacker News. That to me is an interesting ecosystem because even just putting a few sats into it, I've noticed with the boosts, 
the quality of the signal goes up a lot higher than if it's just a, if somebody can just blast you on a free medium. You know, you get drive-bys on the free medium. But even attaching a few sats to it, adding a little bit of value to the message, it seems to kind of just be enough of a barrier that spammers just avoid it. And people are a little more thoughtful. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Also consider joining the show Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element. Details in the show notes. Pew, 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 pew. We got some great boosts this week. We got 19,223 sats from Anonymous. Thank you both for helping me get into Bitcoin, they write. I also want to especially thank you, Chris, for help in the Matrix room. Thanks to him, I was able to get into Bitcoin without having to give out my personal information through a KYC exchange. Well, it's great to hear. And thank you for the big boost, Anonymous. Baffo boosts in 30,000 sats, our weekly mega boost. Boop, 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 baller boost. Thank you, BCDP. Keep them coming. Thank you, Baffo. Good boost, Baffo. BCDP. That's kind of a fun um, thing. Like, maybe we could put that on a hat or something. Or Is the BCDP. Yeah, it sounds like, to me, a hip-hop music group. Also, I could see it just being like a really classy-looking, simple logo on a shirt. You know, just... And it doesn't say anything else except for BCDP. Would it have the baby carriage lawnmower as well? <laughs> Maybe that goes on the back. I don't know. Is that no, too that's busy? For, you save that for the hat, for the trucker hat. I do love trucker hats. Me too. <laughs> uh, adopting Bitcoin comes in with 4,200 sats and just says love. You know what? Boosting is love. And the love is reciprocated. We were just talking about going to adopting Bitcoin this year. I think that has to be a goal. Right. It has to. When is it? Do we know yet? Uh, it's November, November, September, November. That might be a little hard, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Nomadicoder boosts in 5,555 sats. On the lack of a Bitcoin marketing department, I'm thankful Satoshi disappeared. It makes it harder for some entities to form the Bitcoin Foundation or be run by established banking institutions, as happened with Linux and the Linux Foundation. Oof, that, that, that hits close to home, right in the feels. Uh, I, I wish more Linux users would look at a little more skeptical eye at the Linux Foundation. My take from listening to your Linux podcast is the Linux Foundation is essentially an industry group. Because you donate a lot of money, you get a seat on the Linux Foundation, and then you get to promote the open source technologies that you've built products on top of. Yeah, and you know it helps create sort of like a you know a supposedly vendor neutral place for these projects to live under, so that other companies that might be competitors can use. There's definitely value there at the at the industry space, but it, it, at the cost of sort of um, a centralization of focus and funding that leaves a lot of really important open source underfunded and completely ignored. And I think that's sort of the downside to it. Plus, there's just other shenanigans. Jin from Atik comes in with a row of ducks. Hello there. You were saying people generally don't switch until something shocking happens, and I don't think that's happened yet. But I found an article, this article, shocking. There is an example of Kremlin spying, but also other countries like Germany and India. And they're talking about um, a Wired article uh, that covers Telegram and the seeming that Telegram has been potentially sharing uh, certain chat rooms with uh, government agencies. He says, Chris, what do you think about this? And also uh, this linked article that suggests that Matrix is linked to Israeli intelligence from Luke Smith. Um, and he provides us a link to Matrix versus XMPP. Well, I think we actually covered the Wired article, which has a great title, The Kremlin Has Entered the Chat, and I don't think it surprised us at all. But that Matrix versus XMPP article, 
you kind of set me straight on, Chris. You know, first of all, it's a silly premise. XMPP is great and Matrix is great. The market really hasn't adopted XMPP. In fact, the market has sort of systematically moved away from XMPP and there does seem to be some momentum behind Matrix. So both are great, but market dynamics seem to have spoken there. Now, um, Luke Smith is the author of this blog post and Luke doesn't really have any information that he's going on. What he is doing is basically just drawing a few kind of shady connections. Uh, here is his entire connection. He writes, Matrix was developed and funded by a company called Amdocs. Well, again, Luke knows this, but open source gets funded from a lot of different companies. Sometimes they have lots of different connections, but the code they produce is open source. He goes on to say, Amdocs is an Israeli company that has since moved to America and has a near total knowledge of American telephone communications. He provides no links to that assertion, um, and he doesn't really describe why it's bad that they're an Israeli company, but I guess that's just a bad thing. And then he says, you can read about the fun history of Amdocs here and the Matrix Amdocs history here. So he gives some links to the history of Amdocs, and I went and took a look at it over there. And, you know, I don't really recommend you read it, <laughs> but you can if you want to go through it. There's no direct link, but this company has done work with Israeli intelligence and they have funded some matrix development. But, uh, you know, we can look a lot closer. We can find that the NSA developed SE Linux. There's a lot of intelligence agencies and companies that have counter goals to you that have developed a lot of open source. Some of the most impactful open source development to the Linux kernel has been from Facebook. I'm not a very big fan of Facebook, but I sure appreciate their improvements to ButterFS. At the end of the day, what matters is that the source code is open and that you can run your own server and you can choose to turn on and off the encryption. It matters if they contributed a backdoor, but as long as the source code has been looked at and the maintainers have approved it, I think that's probably all we can really ask for. The assertion here is pretty weak. I, I'm a little disappointed. And this code is open source. You can look at it and see if there is a backdoor. I think what's important is what is actually in the code, not who necessarily contributed to the project. And I mean, with the SE Linux, Security Enhanced Linux, and the NSA, you know, the NSA proposed a spec. And to my knowledge, the NSA uses Red Hat Linux in their tech stack. So this is sort of about them, in my opinion, telling a vendor what they wanted to see in a product they wanted to use, not building in some flawed cryptographic scheme that they were going to backdoor. Because they've tried that previously in the 1990s, and it was pretty obvious uh, what they were doing. Luke also asserts that uh, the Matrix Foundation is very wealthy. That is not the case. In fact, in December, uh, they posted they've had to do layoffs at Element and that they're struggling financially to survive. Luke does note that uh, they stopped sponsoring development back in 2017. And then uh, to kind of really wrap it all up, he links to a 9-11 conspiracy site that uh, links the Israelis to 9-11. Anonymous boosts in 2,500 sats. If someone wanted to build desktop applications for Bitcoin, in your opinion, what would be the, the best programming language to learn first? And that's for you, Chris. That's a juicy question. You know, I have to be honest. My first thought was something with Rust because just there is this brand around Rust right now. And when people think Rust, they think secure, they, they think reliable, and they think performance. And my God, if you can associate a Bitcoin application with those three attributes, that's a pretty good start. I don't know. And plus, I don't think you're going to go out of work learning how to how to write Rust. So at the same time, it's also probably a pretty good language to get in on. I wonder why you want to build desktop applications. It seems that most successful applications today are usually mobile first. True. But man, do I appreciate it when the, when you can sync to a desktop version or vice versa. Like That is so great. I love my desktop too. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Space Anonymous, <laughs> what is, is that basically what that name is? Uh, comes in with 5,000 sats. Hi, Dad and Chris. Greetings from Finland. 
Here we have a monetary history of originally gold-pegged maraca, uh, which is a local currency which was constantly devalued, resulting in the monetary reform in 63. In the reform, two zeros were shaved off from every note and coin. Oh, wow. So, okay, 100 markala, if I'm getting that right, Marca, or Marca, I don't know, <laughs> sorry. But 100 went to 1,000 overnight. 100 went to 1. Oh, yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah, right. Wow. Wow. Yeah, the K is right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's so painful. He goes on to say, this did not stop the devaluations and bumpy downward ride, uh, which stopped around the year 2000 when we joined the euro. The unstable currency had a devastating impact on so many families and people's lives. Um, Now I'm seeing the same in the euro. Oh, God, that's awful. Uh, Thanks for boosting in with that history i'd never known the the name of the marca before marca was that, uh, you know the, the thing too is like going back to our bitcoin can be a savings technology like in if you if that's your world that you live in right now i don't think you're really concerned that bitcoin's around twenty three thousand dollars right now. um yeah wow that's power mere mortals podcast boosted in with 2222 sats a row of ducks Ah, so it's those greedy slash productive poor slash middle class people who are causing inflation. The real villains all along. Wow, that's a messed up system. Frowny face. Yeah, uh, now you're getting it. <laughs> yeah, you got it. You got it. Yeah. Yes. So this the is the beatings restore. will continue until morale improves, or it's, as uh, J-Pow puts it, feel some pain. <laughs> Yeah, this was in response to last week when we explained that the the current Fed model for solving inflation is to increase unemployment so that working people will accept lower wages because they'll be so impoverished and desperate. And let's be honest, where does this, how does this play out long term? The Fed either continues to increase rates, which they probably will for a bit, right? But, you know, let's say they continue to increase rates. Well, then the debt payment becomes so, so, so much that we're going to have to cut spending. We're going to have to look at things like Medicare and all those kinds of entitlement programs. And the American people will have a meltdown. Or option number two, seemingly, is we kind of just inevitably settle on a new inflation level and we all just suck it up and pay more for everything and continue on forever. And we just continue to do that. And I think that's clearly the way they're going to have to go eventually. So uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to feel the pain either way, either through continued monetary policy that raises rates and continues to tighten the economy, which the middle class will feel the most, or they're going to pause at some point. Inflation will remain high. You're going to continue to pay more for everything forever. And the people closest to uh, the banks will probably do the best. And uh, <laughs> it's just either way, the middle class and the people lose. And that's why I think people look at Bitcoin. And when you see that scarcity and you see you see the difference that hard money makes, it's hard not to fall in love. We should thank everybody for boosting in. Thank you, everyone. We also got some boosts that didn't have messages and some people streaming sats. We always appreciate that. If you'd like to try out a new podcast app, newpodcastapps.com. Please support Podcasting 2.0 with all kinds of features, including boosts. Or you can send one in without switching apps. You got to grab Albie. Then you go over to the index, the podcast index, find the dad pod on there, and you can boost right there from the webpage. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on February 24th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me. Hey, it's Chris. See you next time, everybody.